And the question comes down to, what are you going to pass down? Are you going to pass down curses or pass down blessings? Most people I deal with in deliverance were born with demons because the curse gave them a legal right to be there. And the Israelites literally saw curses being passed down. And that's why they came up with this proverb in Ezekiel 18.2. They said, sour grapes eaten by the parents leave a sour taste in the mouth of the children. In other words, the decisions the parents make whether to be blessed or cursed, are going to affect the kids for generations to come. God is a generational God. You're going to see this all through scripture. Even secular people know this when they say, that just runs in your family. Oftentimes, they're talking about a generational curse. You can't break something, friend, you don't acknowledge or you ignore. So you have to get to a place where you say, it ran in my family until it ran into me because I'm the bloodline breaker. I'm the one that's going to break it. You can be the one to set your family free. You can be the one to bring deliverance to your family. Have you ever heard of the teaching on generational curses? This teaching is common in deliverance ministries and in the charismatic movement with various beliefs in how generational curses originate. Some believe it is through word curses. Some believe in ancestral or generational spirits that attach to a family bloodline. And some teach individuals are born with demons, as we just heard Isaiah Saldivar say, and the only way to be free is to adopt this teaching and adhere to its practices of decreeing, declaring, renouncing, and even subjecting oneself to deliverance ministry. I don't want to pick on Isaiah Saldivar, but he had a short teaching on this, and I had a sister in Christ reach out to me recently about this topic and wanting more insight about it. So I thought we'd cover this today and dive deeper into what the Bible has to say about this matter and to test this teaching against scripture. I think this is a good example of a short teaching that we can look at and test it against scripture to see if the passages he's referring to actually mean what he says they mean. So with that, let's take a look at this teaching today and see if the Bible agrees with his beliefs and experiences, along with making some observations for consideration. Hi there, and welcome to the Love Sick Scribe podcast, where we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and where we grow in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. I am Dawn Hill, and I am the Love Sick Scribe. I want to read to you a few paragraphs from this website called thefourwinds.com that talks about healing generational curses. It says, quote, The emotional wounds we cause to others can be so powerful that they can be felt not only over a lifetime, but for generations. In the Amazon, they refer to these as generational curses. The terror that a troubled mother inflicts on her daughter is felt by their daughters and their daughter's daughters, and the harsh punishment a father exacts on his son is felt by many generations. This operates on a collective level as well. For example, the legacy of colonialism and slavery didn't disappear when the original slaves died. Their experiences affected the way they raised their children and the way those children raised their children. This is also true in families where there's alcoholism, mental illness, or abuse. Even the grandkids of people who lost everything during the Great Depression still deal with issues of scarcity. Generational curses are often invisible to us since we're born with them and consider them part of our, quote, skin. It's important to be aware of such legacies so that we can heal them instead of damning our children to living in reaction to a wound that was inflicted on our grandmother 75 years ago. Living consequently means healing this wound rather than passing it on as an inheritance to our children. As I keep reading on this website, it says, quote, to identify the generational curses that run in your family, find a quiet spot to sit and open sacred space. Sit quietly and identify themes that run intergenerationally in your family. Remember to look at themes running on both your mother's and father's side. For example, perhaps the men in your family, like mine, lost everything by the age of 49. 
or perhaps loveless marriages and traumatic divorce is the theme in your family. Speak these themes out loud and blow each one into a stick or death arrow. Then burn the stick in the fire with the intention of forming a new agreement with spirit, one that is positive and life-affirming. Turn this agreement into affirmation and speak it out loud. By taking generational curses to the fire, retiring them for good, and replacing them with new agreements with spirit, we heal ourselves and past and future generations. When we break our generational curses, we realize that we are the author of our destiny, that we are on a hero's journey, and that all the things that happened in the past, including the generational curses, are the source of great gifts and lessons if we choose to see them as such. This is an act of power and courage that we, as shamans, make before spirit. We choose to live heroically, no longer a victim of our past or our upbringing. And yes, you just heard me say this is off a website that professes to teach shamanism. So my point in sharing this with you is to show you that the teaching of generational curses is not exclusive to the charismatic movement or to the modern deliverance ministry. In fact, this teaching is perpetuated in other religions and even in the secular world, as Isaiah said a few minutes ago, there are people acknowledge, they say generational curses. So what do we do with this information? How are we to handle things like this? And what does this mean uh, when we hear someone say generational curses? Is this a biblical thing? Is, can this be proven in Scripture? What about what Christ did on the cross? We're going to take a look at that right now. And as I said, we're going to take a look at Isaiah Saldivar's teaching. Now, now, there's a plethora of teaching out there about generational curses, but this one was a concise one, about 13 minutes long, and I will link the video so you can see the resource for yourself to make sure that I'm not taking anything out of context. But we're going to look at a few clips today from this particular teaching that was done a year or two ago, and we're going to look and see the passages that Isaiah cites and see what scripture has to say. And I hope that you will join me on this podcast today. As always, I hope that you're opening your Bible and you're reading along when scripture is read. This is a very important thing that we need to do. And after listening to this and dealing with the frustration of listening to this teaching, because it is sad and frustrating and grieving to hear these types of teachings. And as always, I'm going to share some thoughts at the end for consideration. As I was listening to this teaching that was being presented, it made me very sad. There are many people who are biblically illiterate, as I was myself while in this movement, and they think that they understand scripture, or they think that they can trust these certain ministers, teachers, deliverance ministers, uh, quote apostles, quote prophets and such, and they're relying on their interpretation or their supposed revelation, and they're not being good Bereans, and they're not studying the word. And I'm not saying that to condemn, but I hope it challenges you that if you're not doing that, you need to be opening your Bible. You need to study it on your own, and you also need to be reading along when you're in a corporate gathering. And if you are partaking even of good teachers, good solid Bible teachers, you need to be opening your Bible because you are responsible and accountable for your understanding of Scripture and your biblical literacy. So let's take a look at some of the things that Isaiah Saldivar had to say about generational curses. And I'm going to begin right off the bat at about the 55 second mark. He said this about Jesus defeating the power of Satan, but not the presence of Satan. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, he's roaming looking for someone to devour. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he is the God of this world. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 2, that he rules in the air and he's the prince of the power of the air. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus has commissioned the church to destroy hell's gates. So although the devil's power has been defeated, his presence hasn't been defeated. We must exercise authority against him. So just like the power of the curse is broken, it doesn't necessarily mean the presence of the curse is broken. 
Uh, Prior to the verses he just referenced, he made this statement, Jesus defeated the power of Satan, but not the presence of Satan, as you just already heard him say again. So let's take a look at the four verses he just referenced and see what the context of them are, because that's very important. What he's doing here, as you'll notice, is that he equated the presence of Satan to having generational curses. And so this is why it's so important in this particular example that we're looking at today. You need to look at the context of the passage. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Now, anytime you're looking at a verse that's being referenced just by itself and it's being isolated, it's very important that you look at the verses before it and after it, sometimes even a chapter before and after it, depending on what how you're trying to extrapolate the context of what's going on and to get a better understanding. So when we look at a, a few verses before this, we see in First uh, Peter chapter 5 that, that Peter is uh, exhorting the elders among him, fellow elders and witnesses of the sufferings of Christ and encouraging them as leaders in the church. And he wants them to have a proper order in the church. And so as we go on to verse 5, we'll begin there. It says, You younger men likewise be subject in your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And here's the verse where Isaiah referred that because Satan is present in the earth, this means that we can have generational curses. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Let's read verse 9. I think that would be good. Even verse 10. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Actually, read verse 11. But as you can see here in the context of what Peter is doing, he's encouraging them and he wants them to be alert. He wants them to have strong confidence in the sovereignty of God. And to cast his and to cast their cares on on Christ, and to know that um, the the enemy is most certainly present. And I, I think one thing that's missing from this teaching, I hope that you'll recognize, as usual, this is a theme with a lot of these teachings that come out of the New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, charismatic slash hyper charismatic movement is that you'll notice the those that hold and and subscribe to these beliefs. There seems to be um, the absence of the sovereignty of God. And that God is still in control of this earth. He never lost control. And that Satan is under submission to God. We need to acknowledge that. But he is encouraging, Peter's encouraging the believers to be sober, to be mindful of what's going on. And he's he's referring to resisting, which means to stand up against. And we resist the devil not with special formulas, um, reading from the MacArthur Study Bible, which I would encourage you, you don't have to get a MacArthur Study Bible, but get a good study Bible that will help you, that has um, notes in the margins, that will help you in your understanding and and further your biblical study uh, in your private time of Scripture, because it's very important that we understand the context, the the audience, the application, if it's a prescriptive versus a descriptive passage, so that way we're not being led astray and we're not misappropriating Scripture, and in essence, dishonoring God in the process. So when we look at this, when he talks about resist under the, the notes under uh, 1 Peter 5 verse 9, it says that um, to resist means to stand up against. 
and that this is not a special formula or words directed at him and his demons, but by remaining firm in the Christian faith, this means to continue to live in accord with the truth of God's word. As a believer knows sound doctrine and obeys God's truth, Satan is withstood. Let me also tell you, too, another topic for another day. Peter goes on to tell them that they will suffer and that their fellow brothers and sisters are suffering the same way they are in reference to all of this. As you'll see with the other three passages, this is not an equivocation of, well, Satan is still present in the earth, so that means that you can have a generational curse. Hogwash. There is not in the Bible, and I am going to try to restrain myself today <laughs> as best as I can. So let's go to the next passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And again, we're just reading the passage, and I'm referring to a lot of times I try to find other resources because I, I think it's better for me to use people, uh, male Bible teachers that are more reputable sites that are going to have solid biblical teaching on them. And so I want to share those with you to steer you in a direction that is going to give you more sound biblical teaching. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, this is the verse that, that Isaiah referenced to say Satan exists, so generational curses exist. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is the thing, not just him. If anybody would bother when they're teaching and ministering these things, these beliefs, if they would bother to open the Bible and to read the entire verse, he did not do that. All he said was, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that he is the, um, the God of this world. But he has blinded, it says, he has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this is referencing unbelievers. This is not talking about believers. And even in verse three, when you back up, it says, and even if our gospel is veiled, Paul is talking about this, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So if we take time to read it in context, because verse four is in the middle of a sentence, it's in the middle of an incomplete thought. If we have to look at the context of it, and we can see the context here is that Satan is the little God of this world, the little G, and in the study notes here in, the, in this Bible, it says the current world mindset expressed by the ideals, opinions, goals, hopes, and views of the majority of people, it means this world, and that they're blinded, that they can't see the truth of, the, of God's word. They are adopting and, and taking on the world system of rebellion and sin because they're lost. I hope that that helps because Paul's explaining his apostolic ministry here in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and it helps give some more understanding. So now we're going to look at Ephesians 2, 2. He referenced Ephesians 2, 2. So it says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Are you a, a child of disobedience if you belong to Christ? No, this is talking about the, the prince of the power of the air, referencing Satan, and that prior to this in verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, um, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And goes on to remind us, we were all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. 
I'm not a a child of wrath any longer because I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I believe that he satisfied the wrath of God on my behalf for my sins and rebellion, the punishment that I deserved. So his wrath no longer abides on me because I'm not an unbeliever. My faith is in Christ alone to save me. Now, the last one I wanted to go to, he mentioned, was Matthew 16, 18, and I wanted to share a little bit. And I hope you enjoy the Bible because we're going to be looking at a lot of it today, and it's really good. It's always good to go to the Word of God. Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and it was at this point that Peter has the confession of who Jesus is, uh, and Jesus is asking his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they were trying to give an answer. Peter answers, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answers him and says, I also, in verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, that's the full verse in Matthew 16, 18. Isaiah just got done telling people that it says in there that the church is to destroy or prevail over the the gates, conquer the gates of, of hell. So when we look at this verse and look at the study Bible here, the gates of Hades, um, Hades is the place of punishment for the spirits of dead unbelievers. And so the point of entry for such is death. The study notes say that this then is a Jewish phrase referring to death, even death, the ultimate weapon of Satan, and references Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, which I do want to read, and that Satan has no power to stop the church, that the blood of martyrs, in fact, has sped the growth of the church in size and spiritual power. Now, when we go to the cross-reference of Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, this is another great passage for us to understand what Jesus did on the cross, that he destroyed the power Satan had over death. When we go to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he says, Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Well, again, when you look in the study notes in this study Bible, the power of death, it says this is the ultimate purpose of the incarnation. Jesus came to earth to die. By dying, he was able to conquer death in his resurrection. By conquering death, he rendered Satan powerless against all who are saved. Satan's using the power of death is subject to God's will and references Job. So we can see here that these passages are have nothing to do with generational curses. And just because Satan exists doesn't mean anything as far as a believer in Christ having generational curses. Jesus conquered death by his resurrection, and his power renders the power of Satan over believers ineffective. So we don't have to be worried and concerned about generational curses. And Isaiah says that because the power of a curse is broken doesn't mean the presence of a curse is broken. So how does that bring freedom? I mean, if you hear someone say that, how in the world does that bring any freedom to you? I mean, you well, the, the power of the, the curse is broken, but that doesn't mean that the presence of a curse is broken because he's, a, again, he's equivocating the the existence of Satan, the presence of Satan, and because Satan has not been finally judged and thrown in the lake of fire, that just means that we as believers can still have generational curses. We can still have indwelling demons. We can still have all of this stuff and there's no freedom. Like you do have freedom, but you don't have freedom. I mean, that's really what's essentially being done. And it also diminishes the gospel. And I'll get into that more later because it really, 
it diminishes the power of the cross. The reason why I say that is because of, of this particular teaching that's perpetuated and what Isaiah is saying. And he's also, he's misappropriating. He goes on in this teaching, in this video, to misappropriate 1 Peter 2.24. Now, this verse is very heavily misappropriated, and I misappropriated it myself when I was in this movement because it's one of the go-to passages a lot of times in the Word of Faith and in the New Apostolic Reformation, charismatic movement. But people will quote 1 Peter 2.24, and they will say, well, I'm guaranteed healing on this earth. By the stripes of Jesus, I was healed. Was is a past tense, and I can claim that. And I'm claiming it, and it's mine, and I'm going to walk in it in Jesus' name. Well, what is the context? And I've had, I mean, I have had had friendly arguments with people. I've shown them and and had and read the context. And they said, well, no, I just still believe that my healing is, is promised in the here and now. Like I can walk in divine healing and never be sick. Then scripture doesn't tell us that. It does not tell us that. It would be nice if it did, but it doesn't. Does God still heal today? Yes. Does he do miracles? Yes. We've talked about this before. But today we're talking about generational curses. First Peter 2.24, Peter is relaying uh, to the believers here of the dispersion, and he says here in, in verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. You can't just take the end of that verse and appropriate it for whatever you want. We must read it in context. And if we even back up to verse 21 in First Peter 2, it says, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Verse 25, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is talking about spiritual sickness, my friend. This And it's even a reference, it's a cross-reference to Isaiah 53, which is the passage about the suffering servant, which is prophesying of Christ, of the coming Messiah. This is a, that 1 Peter 2.24 is found in Isaiah 53. This is, again, this is why biblical study is so vital. It's so vital for you. I don't want you being led astray. I understand what it means to be led astray, and I, and I know I don't know everything, and I'm still growing and learning, and I hope from my own mistakes and error and sin that I was in that others who hear this will glean from this and that you will have this desire and passion to get into the Word of God and make sure that you're understanding it properly because we want to glorify Christ in all that we do. And my concern personally is that I don't want to bring reproach on the name of Christ by abusing his word and misappropriating it and making it mean something and contorting it and twisting it to mean something that it doesn't mean. It never meant that. What it means and intends in the beginning is is so beautiful and it's glorious and it's enough. His word is sufficient. And if we just take time to read it and study it, then we'll avoid these pitfalls and we'll avoid these teachings that are just leading us astray. Isaiah goes on further to say that we must apply the blood of Jesus and his power for it to be effective. Where is this in scripture? He cites no scripture for this. And my conclusion in listening to all this is that it's works-based. It's works-based and it's legalism. It says that you can be free if you'll do something. That's works-based salvation. 
That's works-based doctrine. That's another gospel. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you're telling people, well, you can be free, but you have to apply his power and you have to apply his blood and you have to do all this and jump through all these hoops and then you can be free. And then you might be free. You know, just because you the power of a curse is broken doesn't mean that the presence of the curse is broken. I mean, you may have had like a grandfather, a great, 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 great grandfather that was a Freemason. And, you know, you're going to have to figure out if you've got some of these generational spirits that have attached themselves to your bloodline because you're a bloodline breaker. I mean, he even says that he has a T-shirt on during this broadcast he's doing. He's saying, I'm a bloodline breaker. And, you know, we're called to be bloodline breakers. What he fails to acknowledge, sadly, and I and I say this with no disdain, no malice towards Isaiah, it's the teaching. He fails to acknowledge the law in what he's teaching. And I'll show you this in a few minutes. He fails to acknowledge his use of legalism in what he is teaching and reapplying the law, putting burdens back on people. The law was meant to be a mirror to people to show them. God demands perfection and he demands holy and righteous living. And you can't do all these things. That's why it pointed to Christ who fulfilled the law and did what we could not do. Ha, huh. okay. So as we go on, we're going to hear about the two minute, 20 second mark. Um, the ways that he says that you can tell when you are under a curse. So one of the evidences you're under a curse is absence of the blessing of God. Listen, friend, when you start indulging in darkness, you come under the power of darkness and you move out of God's jurisdiction, out of God's divine protection. So people want God's divine protection, but they want to live how they want. I think I understand what he's trying to say there to a certain point. And I agree, you can't just live how you want, especially if you are a believer. Your life is not your own anymore. You you were bought at a price. Corinthians talks about this. We need to understand those things and, and realize that we don't belong to ourselves. But having said that, he talks about the absence of God's blessing. What does that even mean? Are you going to tell this to someone that lives halfway across the world in Africa that lives in abject poverty? Is that the standard or the the litmus test to show that we're in God's blessing? What does that even mean, the absence of God's blessing? Are you talking financial? Are you talking material? Or what are you talking about? Are you talking about peace, non-material prosperity? I don't know what he means by absence of God's blessing. And he says that he got delivered of a generational curse and that a person with an experience is not at the mercy of a person with an argument. Now, Bill Johnson has said that and other people have said that too. And it sounds like a real quippy type statement to say, but frankly, you are at the mercy of someone with an argument if your experience contradicts scripture and it degrades what Christ did. And I'm just going to say this, and I know I've said it before in, in different ways, but Scripture is not at the mercy of our experiences. Your experience and my experience are not the standard of truth that we rest upon. There are people that are in false religions, they're in the occult, all types of beliefs that they have, and they everybody's going to testify of experiences. The question is, as a believer, our standard is the Word of God. It has the final say. So if our experiences contradict Scripture, or they're adding to scripture, we can't find them in scripture, they negate scripture, or they're trying to be on par with scripture, then we have a problem. We have a serious problem and we need to be really we need to be willing to test our experiences and to say it doesn't matter how real they were if they don't match up with scripture, I reject them and I am going to believe what the word of God has to say on this matter. So, I just would disagree. Your experience is at the mercy of someone with an argument if it's coming from scripture. As he goes on in a minute at the 3 minute 30 second mark, 
Um, he goes on, as we just heard at the very beginning of this, and you can go back and listen to it. I won't play it again for time's sake. But this is where he was talking about, he got, he mentioned about Ezekiel 18.2, and he made a point to reference that particular passage, and we're going to look at that, because he uses it as a proof text in order to say, well, this is why there's generational curses. Let me just say, as I say this, I'm not disparaging the Old Testament, because the Old Testament and New Testament are necessary. He uses a lot of Old Testament passages in order to validate the the existence of generational curses. And a lot of them that he's pulling from are under the Mosaic law. And we, when we look at Ezekiel 18, I want to read some portions of this chapter to you because it's so important to read and to understand, especially people that are going to say, well, we can have generational curses today. We need to have deliverance ministry done on believers in Christ. Uh, we need to deal with an ancestral spirits that have attached themselves to bloodlines. This is paganistic talk flat out. This is paganistic talk. Ezekiel 18 helps us to see that what his point is, is actually refuted. The 18, uh, we'll begin with verse one in, in Ezekiel 18. It says, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. We'll read some passages of Ezekiel 18, but I want to read a little bit of the study notes in the study Bible I have. It says down below, it says, one of the foundational principles of scripture is presented in this chapter, and it references Deuteronomy 24, 16, which is important in this passage because that's one of the passages in scripture that basically helps us to see that the sins of the fathers are not attributed to the sons and vice versa, meaning that people are responsible for their own individual sins. And that's what Deuteronomy 24, 16 is saying. And that's what Ezekiel 18 is saying as well. So the proverb that is referred to in Ezekiel 18, 2 says the people of Judah would not acknowledge their guilt worthy of judgment, though they were themselves wicked and idolatrous. They blame their forefathers for their state. So what you would see in the Proverbs like this is the people of Judah, they were in exile at this point when Ezekiel was written, and they were blaming their forefathers for the, the calamity that they were in for, the, the, um, for the, the state of physical state of where they ran in captivity. But really what was happening was is that they were perpetuating the idolatry that was going on that had been passed down to them by seeing this practiced. This was not a demon. Nowhere in here does it say that there's a demon or ancestral spirit or generational curse or anything like that. It says the rationalizing in the study notes is expressed in a current proverb, which means in effect they sinned, which is eat the sour grapes. We inherit the bitterness. The teeth are set on edge. And in verse three, Ezekiel says, you're not going to use this proverb that God's not going to use it. It's God rejected their blame shifting and evasion of responsibility is the commentary that's in here. So let me read a little bit of this in Ezekiel 18 to give you some perspective. In verse 5, it says, But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, it goes on for a while and it, it's reiterating some of these things. It lists a, a, a several different things that this man is righteous in doing and practices justice and righteousness and he's not committing these sins then he will have life. In verse 10, it says, then he may have a violent son who sheds blood and who does any of these things to a brother and continues to list them and that he will not live. This man that does this, the son will not live. He has committed all these abominations. He will surely be put to death and his blood will be on his own head. This is in verse 13. 
In verse 14, it goes on to say, Now behold, he has a son who has observed all his father's sins, which he committed, and observing does not do likewise. So this is helping us to see the context, the third and fourth generations. We're seeing that these, just like in the modern times today, there are many of us that can, um, that can attest to that we grew up in, in families where we saw things perpetuated that are, are sinful, first and foremost, and they are not what we, if we recognize the error in them and the sin in them, or that we, we just knew that that was something we didn't want to do because of the devastation that it caused in the family, that we did not want to continue in that, that way, in those habits and those behaviors. Well, this is the same thing. This son has observed all his father's sins. He's seen them committed, and yet he decides not to do those things and that he is not going to be punished because of his father. So we see that this is going to be individually. And in verse 19, it says, Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person whose sins will die, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. And as we skip over to verse 30, it ends in Ezekiel 18 saying, Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that the iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions, which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Isn't that beautiful? We get to see the gospel in the Old Testament. The prophets, the true prophets of God, were declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ even before the New Testament came to reveal the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing when we get to look at it. So that kind of helps shed some light on Ezekiel 18. It actually disproves what he just said. And he talks about that you can be the one to free your family. I'm going to touch on that a little bit later. He also talks about Deuteronomy 30, 19. So let's turn there and let's take a look at that passage. Deuteronomy 30, 19. Now, though, though I appreciate his reference to scripture, it, I would appreciate it more if he would actually um, read it and, and to do it in context. And this is, he is a rapid fire individual when he talks. And I don't know if that's intentional or unintentional or a bad habit or what that is. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live you and your descendants. He uses this verse to also reiterate the fact that there are generational curses. He references this, and I want you to pay attention to the context, because context is important. Audience, context, application. In uh, Exodus 34, we see that Moses had got, has gone back up on Mount Sinai, and he is going to be cutting the two tablets, and they're going to be replaced, the Ten Commandments. This is after he broke them, after he became angry, because when he came down from the mountain, the Israelites were worshiping. They had uh, created a golden calf. And they were worshiping. They were already committing idolatry and sinning against God. And so the Lord is commanding Moses to recut the tablets so he can rewrite the Ten Commandments on them. And in verse 7, so in verse 6, we'll back up to verse 6, it says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands 
who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And so when we look at the study notes on here, it actually took a, it took me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 5 and 6. Well, if you pay attention to what's going on here, this is under the law. This is under the Mosaic law that this is being stated. And this is really important to remember as we get near the end of this episode, because it's going to help us to understand Galatians 3.13, I do believe. Exodus 20, when we go to Exodus 20, and we look at verses 5 and 6, as the study Bible is telling us to do, it says under there, under the study notes, that Moses had made it clear that children were not punished for the sins of their parents. And he references Deuteronomy 24, 16, Ezekiel 18, verses 19 through 32. But children would feel the impact of breaches of God's law by their parents' generation as a natural consequence of its disobedience, its hatred of God. Children reared in such an environment would imbibe and then practice similar idolatry, thus themselves expressing hateful disobedience. The difference in consequence served as both a warning and a motivation. The effect of a disobedient generation was to plant wickedness so deeply that it took several generations to reverse. So this is just kind of help, again, to help get some understanding, a little bit more understanding in Bible study with this. And Isaiah talked about the iniquity on the third and fourth generation, and he referenced at about the five minute, 15 second mark, he said, you know, we have 30 ancestors, and he breaks it down into two parents and four grandparents and eight great grandparents and on down the line. And he said there, you know, there's a lot of places that we can get um, generational curses from because we have 30 different ancestors. Well, he got this teaching from Derek Prince. This is not something new he came up with. Um, I found an article written by Bob DeWay, and it's on the CIC Ministry website, and I'll put the link down below, but it talks about, it references this quote that Derek Prince said about the 30 ancestors. So it's kind of ironic to me that this is actually a, a generational curse teaching of generational curses. So, but anyway, so Isaiah talks about that, and then he says the Holy Spirit will reveal where all these curses are through word, maybe a word of knowledge or prayer. Again, I think that this creates bondage in people because they're always going to be wondering, well, you know, I'm not really prospering in my life right now. I wonder if I have a generational curse somewhere that I never dealt with. And it, it causes you to be um, like a dog chasing a rabbit. And you're trying to to track down these things and why you're not prospering instead of looking at scripture. It takes us away from the truth of God's word and renewing our minds and understanding the word better and resting in God resting in God um, and, and the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now, as Isaiah goes on, he talks about looking for the effects of the curse, and he lists nine different things that could be uh, effects of the curse or symptoms of a generational curse in your life, and he bases this on Deuteronomy 28. He lists uh, nine. So they're poverty, barrenness, or miscarriage. The third is failure at anything in life. Number four is unnatural death. Number five is sickness or disease. Number six is life trauma. Number seven is mental breakdown or emotional breakdown. Number eight is family breakdown. And number nine is spiritually hindered in hearing God's voice. And he says he, he deduces all this from De Deuteronomy 28. What he fails, again, to mention in Deuteronomy 28, I want to read to you, at the end of Deuteronomy 28. And so one of the things that we need to remember is who was the audience? The audience was the Israelites. And they were being told, and God knew that they were going to rebel, that, he, that they were going to be wicked and sinful and commit idolatry against him, which was spiritual fornication, and that they were going to forsake him. 
He knew that. He laid out the blessings for them. He laid out more cursings for them because he knew what they were going to do. And if you read in Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 47, we can see here, he says, because you did, after he lists the blessings and the cursings, he says, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst in nakedness and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down a nation in whose language you shall not understand. And goes on to talk about this. This was prophesying, foretelling of the Assyrian captivity, the Babylonian captivity that would happen to uh, the people of God because they rebelled and sinned against God. And God knew this was going to happen. And in verse 58 of Deuteronomy 28, which I encourage you to read the whole chapter, he says, if you are not careful to observe all the words of this law, which are written in this book, to fear this honored and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring extraordinary plagues on you and your descendants, even severe and lasting plagues and miserable and chronic sicknesses. Who will do that? The Lord will do that. See, we've been, a lot of us have been taught that God doesn't put sickness on people. Well, there's plenty of scriptures that disagree and contradict with that false teaching. We can read this plainly. And it says, because of their sin, he said, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt, verse 60, of which you were afraid, and they will cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague, which not written in the book of this law, the Lord will bring on you until you are destroyed. Then you shall be left you a number, whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, because you did not obey the Lord your God. Are they going to read these passages? Are, they, are these deliverance ministers going to read these passages in their services? Or are they just going to leave these out? And they're going to say, well, that was for Israel. But the blessings and cursings, they're, they're for you today, even though they were said to Israel, but they're for you today. Do you, see, do you see how that creates a problem? We have to be able to read everything in context and understand it properly. Near the end, as he goes on, the last several minutes of this, this video that he does, he talks about with deliverance, he states that demons hang on and won't leave um, until a curse is broken again. No Bible passage says that. This is based on his understanding. And what was interesting when I started listening to this video, he then, I had no idea until I started listening to this video. He refers to, to Ryan Lestrange's book, Praying Curses, and says it's very good, and he endorses it. And he has people do this declaration prayer that's in this book. And he starts having them repeat after him and, and stating all these things in here. And let me just tell you this, real to, as a side note, decreeing is not prayer. Uh, as someone who was on the, the intercessory prayer team before years and for years in this movement in our church and, and part of different areas, decreeing is not prayer. I know that we, th we, we thought that and we were told that that is not found in scripture. That is not petitioning. That is demanding and commanding and declaring. That is not prayer. And we are not responsible for our own parents' sins either. So I don't need to go back and find out what my sixth grandmother did and find out what kind of life she lived and break the curse off my life because her sins are getting passed down to me. That's not biblical. That's not what scripture says. And that diminishes the finished work of Christ on the cross. And it removes accountability and it passes blame onto demons or other people. And that's a story as old as the garden. Recall what happened in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned against God and they did not listen and they rebelled against God and did not follow instructions and they disobeyed 
And they ate of the tree that, that they were not supposed to eat from of the knowledge of good and evil. And what did they do? Eve blade and the serpent. What did Adam do? Oh, it was the woman that you made me, God. And he essentially was blaming God. So this, is, this theme is as old as the garden, and it's because of sin. Because sin entered, and rebellion entered. And there's no decreeing and declaring that you're going to do or I could ever do that is going to decree away sin. It's going to take repentance and a, and a contrite heart before God to acknowledge our need for the Savior, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to trust that he has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf and that we're no longer sons of disobedience, but that we're children of God. We've been adopted as co-heirs with Christ and that we've been cleansed. We've been justified. We're being sanctified daily. And someday we're going to be glorified. We're going to be out of the presence of sin for all eternity. And we're going to, and we're going to worship God and we're going to enjoy him forever. It's just very sad when I, I hear this teaching now because of, you know, I hear him at the end. He talks about breaking and, you know, renouncing. You need to renounce. You need to say this out of your mouth and be sure that you're renouncing all these things. But there's no talk of repentance. There's no talk of you are committing this sin and you are being responsible for this. And the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There, there was none of that. And so now having looked at this teaching, let's look further at scripture when testing these these teachings. Now, one of the things I I came across was an article that I found helpful that actually talked about generational spirits. And I wanted to share that with you. It says, what does the Bible say about hereditary spirits or generational spirits? And uh, the fact that deliverance ministries and some charismatic groups teach this and that there can be these spirits that are uh, attached to your bloodline and that they can cause anger, like an anger demon or a depression demon that can pass down from ancestor to ancestor and that they have legal right. Again, there's no biblical passage to back this up and to support this teaching. But yet this teaching is perpetuated and it's popular because people want to hear I'll be frank. I mean, people want to hear, we want to hear someone else is responsible for our sin. We don't want to take responsibility for it. It's a lot easier to blame someone else than for us to look at ourselves and to say, yeah, I'm a sinner and I, and I need Christ and, and I have rebelled against God and I, I need him to cleanse me from unrighteousness and I need the word of God to renew my mind and to continue to walk in the ways and be led by the Holy Spirit. That's a daily process of walking um, and being led by the Holy Spirit and having our minds renewed by the Word of God. And this article says that usually deliverance ministries recommend that a person renounce the generational spirits and all the curses his or her family is under, binding and rebuking all the demons, ordering sickness away, and that it, this must be done out loud so the demons can hear the rebuke and the idea is that one must cast out all the demons and break all packs with the devil made by ancestors and only then is one free to grow spiritually in Christ. But this is more akin to paganism, as I just said, and it's not in Scripture. According to this article, it says neo-pagans and Wiccans readily admit a belief in generational curses, demons that attach themselves to a certain family, and the idea that occult power can be passed down through one's family line. In paganism, breaking a generational curse often includes working with one's dead ancestors. So I know that some of these ministers would deny that they would categorically reject that um, as necromancy, but they'll still take on these other things that the world is doing, that pagans are doing, and they'll adopt it as Christianity when it's not. There's no biblical foundation for this teaching of generational curses, of hereditary spirits, generational spirits, none of that. Sometimes people will use Deuteronomy 5.9, talking about that God is a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents, the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. But we also need to read those uh, scriptures in context. That's also found in Exodus 20, 
that we read a few minutes ago in verses 5 and 6, and also in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. This doesn't mention any demons, any types of spirits whatsoever. And it's not a generational curse necessarily. God was disciplining the rebellious in Israel, but demons are not said to be involved in this. And we can see uh, really the more beautiful aspect of the passages like Exodus 20, the grace of God far exceeds the wrath of God. Because it goes on to talk about in in Exodus 20 verse 6, that he will bless a thousand generations who worship him and love him. So we can see that his grace and his mercy is far, it far super, it supersedes his wrath. That's something that we can take away from that passage and understand the beauty of that. Yes, there is punishment for sin for those who reject God and they, they are, they are in full rebellion and there is sin and they do not believe in, they do not receive Christ as Lord and Savior. They reject God. But for those who are in Christ, this is a type and shadow, by the way, in Old Testament. We see this now in the New Testament. For those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the, for the law, the spirit of Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Does that mean that you're not going to sin? No, it does not. It means that you have a Savior who cleanses you. You have an advocate with the Father and that you are no longer under the power of sin, but the Holy Spirit now enables us and gives us power over sin and that we have a Savior who has conquered death. Does that mean that we are not going to die physically? No, because the curse is still in the world. It's subjected, and we'll get there in just a moment. But we can see here from the hereditary spirits that are talked about here, there's no biblical foundation for this. And then the other reference I wanted to um, to tell you about was the CIC ministry. It talks about, it's a really long article, but it's really good. But he talks about a lot of these areas. The, the title of the article is called Generational Curses, Biblical Answers to Questions Raised by the Phrase, Visit the Iniquities to the Third and Fourth Generation. I'm going to post the link to this below. It's a very helpful website. It's got a lot of good information on it, a lot of meaty information. I think you'll find it very helpful. But he talks about this particular passage, uh, the particular um, belief, and he, he references several different passages that are talked about, including Ezekiel 18. We can see through this that glorious promises of Christ far exceed this false teaching that's going on. I want to share some thoughts as we're getting ready to end our time together today. As always, I, f- I hope that you're finding this helpful, but I have serious concerns uh, with this particular teaching. And there's a few that I listed I wanted to, to share with you. For one thing, the, the personal experience ele- is elevated as truth, as I've mentioned. And going back to the whole statement that Isaiah made, that a person with an experience is not at the mercy of a person with an argument. Well, how does he reconcile the personal experiences of those in false religions and the occult, who in Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Roman Catholicism, who testify of freedom from generational curses? Shamanism, you know, we read that at the beginning. How do you reconcile that? I don't see how you can reconcile that if you're going to use the argument that a person with an experience is not at the mercy of a person with an argument, and it's based in scripture, the argument is, I don't see how you can reconcile that. One of the things that really concern me about this is that there almost seems to be like a Messiah complex, that there's a diminishing of Christ's finished work on the cross, and it makes us the Savior. He said during this 13-minute video, he says, you know, you're the bloodline breaker. You're the one that's going to bring freedom to your family. That's not biblical either. 
You know, you can think as highly as you want to about yourself and think you're a bloodline breaker and think that you're the best thing since sliced bread and that demons tremble when you when your feet hit the floor. But there's no verses to back that up, my friend. There's no verses to back that up. And I was one of those people that used to think that. I used to think that the devil was afraid of me and that I had all this power and that I would I would I could just break things with the power of my words and all of this. And that is Luciferian behavior. That is absolutely Luciferian behavior. When you begin to exalt yourself, even if it's unintentional, when you begin to exalt yourself and think that you are that powerful and that you are going to save your family and that you are going to blood, break the bloodline uh, curses and such, that shows that for me to have that type of mindset, it showed that I had an improper understanding of, what, um, of who the Savior was and what Christ did. And Galatians 3.13 was one of the passages early on when I came out of this movement that really helped me to get some better understanding. Just really simply reading that passage and realizing, hey, I'm, I'm not that special. I'm not the Savior, even though I didn't think I was. But, you know, sometimes we tend to think that we're bigger than our britches are, you know. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Verse 14, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Now, Paul is addressing the fact that there are Judaizers that are coming in during Galatians and that they are bringing another gospel and that they are to be accursed. If they're bringing another gospel than than what the Galatians have heard, that those people are to be accursed, even if it was Paul himself. And he goes on to, to rebuke them because they're taking back on the law. And I would say that this is taking back on the law in this type of teaching. When you are shackling people to beliefs that are in the law, the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, and you're telling them, this is my belief because of generational curses, you're shackling them back to the law, and that's another gospel. And it's works-based, and it's creating bondage in people. And you need to reject it. You need to reject it. What Christ did was sufficient Another article I found that talked about Galatians 3.13 that I'll, I'll share the link with you that I think that you will find helpful on this. When you look at Galatians 3.13, it talks about the Greek word that was used for redeem meant a financial term that referred to the process of purchasing a slave's freedom. When a slave was redeemed, he or she was no longer bound to the rules and expectations of a slave's life. So to be redeemed from the curse of the law means to be set free from its rules and regulations. In other words, those who are redeemed from the curse of the law are no longer required to observe the law's commands as the Israelites were. And it goes on in this article to say Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. His sacrificial work on the cross purchased our freedom from the law. Jesus fulfilled the original intention and purpose of the Mosaic law on our behalf. And what we could not do perfectly in obeying God's will laid out in the law, Christ did for us. He fulfilled the law and accomplished what God intended. Now, this does not mean that we ignore things in the Mosaic Law, meaning the moral and the ethical commands, because there's different types of law that you'll see. There's um, civil, ceremonial, and moral that are mentioned by biblical scholars. We are still obligated to follow the moral law. We, it doesn't mean we can go kill people and, and covet and steal and lie. And the law points us to show us, again, 
our need for Christ and that God has a high standard for his people to follow. Well, we know that Christ fulfilled the law. We also know that we are called to follow the moral and ethical commands, but we're not obligated to follow the other parts of the law that were set in the Old Testament for the Israelites. And to be redeemed from the curse of the law, this also means we no longer have to face the judgment of God. So we don't have to worry about spiritual death. We are promised eternal life. Where is this message being proclaimed in deliverance ministry for crying out loud? Salvation is deliverance. I did a podcast last week. If you haven't listened to it, you feel free to check it out if you want to. But talking about the teaching of deliverance is the children's bread. And salvation is deliverance. And again, the burdens that are placed on people to tell them you have demons and that's why you deal with all this stuff and, and you need to have this this cast out of you and that cast out of you and you're wiggling around on the floor and flopping around like a fish and growling and all this stuff. That is not what a believer does. These people need to be hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ in its pure concentration and they need to understand what the word of God says in spirit and truth and, and have someone really minister the gospel to them and not this false teaching that's being perpetuated. It's really concerning to me and scary to me that there are people being led astray, and a lot of these people may not even be born again. They need to hear the gospel. The gospel is not just a one-time thing. We need to be hearing the gospel all the time and be reminded of why we need Christ every single day and rejoice in the fact that we have been given the promise of eternal life, and we have been sanctified and justified, and we are going to be glorified with Christ one day and be with him for all eternity, away from all of these things, away from all the pain and sickness and death and disease and all the 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 trials and tribulations y'all it's a temporal thing that we deal with second corinthians 4 talks about this that it is a a transient or a temporal thing that we're dealing with that's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory we're not promised as believers we're not going to suffer stop listening to these people that are telling you that the reason why you're not prospering what they think is prosperous is because you have a demon or a generational curse This is a Western mindset to tell people that if you're not prospering in our definition, not according to scripture, but if you're not prospering in our definition, then you don't really know God and you have a generational curse. It's hogwash, absolute nonsense that needs to be rejected. I'm zealous about this and and I want people to to walk in the true freedom of Christ and understand the power of what God has done, the power of what Christ has done, because frankly, this is an insult to what Christ has done on the cross, and it's demeaning it and degrading it to say, well, you know, he did break the power of Satan, but he didn't break the presence of Satan. It's almost it's almost like a, a slap in the face to say, well, you kind of, it was a partial thing that he did. He really didn't do um, much of anything. So now we've got to finish it all. That is not the gospel. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. I'm going to put the link to the, the Galatians 3.13. It's best I move on to number three. The third uh, thing I wanted to mention was scripture does not support this teaching, and it promotes a lack of accountability and rather in bl- blaming others. And I mentioned how this is reminiscent of the garden, and I'm just going to be frank in telling you this is the doctrine of demons. This is an absolute doctrine of demons because it is, it is bringing more bondage on people, and it's not glorifying Christ when this happens. Um, the earth has been subjected to futility. I think that's something that Isaiah and, and others are missing that are in this, this type of so-called ministry that they're doing. And Romans 8 helps us to see what Scripture has to say about this, that the earth was subjected to futility because of sin. 
If we look at Romans 8, beginning in verse 18, we read, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God." For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And when we see in verse 20, when it mentions the word futility, this refers to the inability to achieve a goal or purpose. Because of man's sin, God cursed the physical universe. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. I encourage you to read that. And now no part of creation entirely fulfills God's original purpose. We need to be aware of that. The earth has been subjected to futility because of of sin, because of the fall of man. We can't escape death. We still physically die. This is part of the curse. And the hope we have as Christians is that we are promised eternal life after natural death. So we don't have to worry about that. Death has lost its sting. Satan doesn't have that power over us any longer of us perishing. And we are told in Scripture how to resist Satan, how to um, engage in true biblical spiritual warfare, which I've talked about before on other episodes. And I would just tell you, I'm going to reiterate this, and I get it. This is go- this type of stuff, it ruffles feathers at times, or people, they just tune me out, or what, and it's fine. But this teaching is legalistic, and it's law-based, and it places burdens back on professing believers, causing them to trust more in their own doing and actions than in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And what God did was sufficient for you, and it was sufficient for me. As believers in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, and you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you recognize your need for Him, uh, that sin entered with the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And because of what Adam did, that sin came in according to Romans 5, and it came through the whole human race. And that because we have broken God's law, we've broken His commands, that we deserve his punishment. We deserve his wrath. That a just God punishes sin. He punishes rebellion. He punishes disobedience to him because he's just. But we have the eternal hope that Christ came and he died for us. He satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. He paid the wage that we deserve for for our sin, which is death. And that he restores us, he reconciles us back to the Father. And his death, burial, and resurrection is the gospel. And his glorious resurrection gives us the glorious promise of eternal life. That we will not perish, but we will have everlasting life in him. Because we are no longer sons of disobedience, we are no longer children of wrath, but we are children of God. And that we have been adopted into his family. And that we have received the ministry of reconciliation. And that we stand justified before a holy God because of Christ, because his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. His, his atonement cleanses us. See, these are the things that we need to meditate on and to think on and think on his word. What God did was sufficient and his word is sufficient to teach us and to help us in knowing the way we should walk. And the Holy Spirit has been sent to help us along the way. He is our helper. He is our comforter. He is not a weakling. 
And I know that some of these ministers would say, well, I don't believe that. But when I hear teachings like this, it, it seems as if there is a low view of the Holy Spirit, a low view of what Christ did on the cross, a low view of what true freedom, true salvation is, true deliverance is. Generational curses are not a biblical teaching. And I would encourage you, go to Scripture to weigh these things out and to understand that what God did is enough for you to be free. It's enough. And you're not responsible for the sins of your mother, your father, your grandmother, your uncle, your, your sixth grandmother, your 15th grandfather. You're not responsible for any of those people's sins. They are going to have to stand before God and give an account for their life, whether they were born again or not, just as you and I will have to. And we can be at peace even now in this earth that is groaning under futility and in the sin that rages and in the, the short time that, that Satan has to do what he's going to do and to encourage more rebellion for those that don't know Christ. Be encouraged in the Lord. Be encouraged in the word of God and the promises that testify of Christ. You don't need the deliverance that these people are offering and you don't need generational curses broken off of you. And as believers, we know that 1 John 1 and 1 John 2 help us to understand that if we sin, that we have an advocate with the Father. God doesn't want us to sin. We know that we are going to sin and that we can go before the throne of grace, that we can go to him and that we can ask for forgiveness and ask and repent of those things and turn from those ways and continue in the progressive sanctification that we're walking in in this earth. I hope that you have found this helpful today. I hope it gets you mad enough to where you go to scripture and that you take a hard, good, hard look at this and that you understand this is not an attack on an individual. This is an attack on a teaching that has been perpetuated for years, and it's only creating more bondage for people, not freedom. If you enjoy this podcast, I ask that you would please consider leaving a five-star review. And uh, if you want to get in touch with me, you can uh, email me at dawn at lovesickscribe.com. And I look forward to being on here with you next time. Until that time comes, be blessed today by the truth of God's word. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram at lovesickscribe. And if you enjoy reading, feel free to hop on over to lovesickscribe.com and subscribe to my blog. I've enjoyed being with you today, and I look forward to our next time together as we talk about biblical truths, current topics, and we continue to grow together in loving the Word and loving the one who is the Word, Jesus Christ. Blessings to you.